the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. This morning, David Windsor and I speak with Olympic and World Cup champion skier Bodie Miller, along with filmmaker Brett Rapkin. They'll talk about their new film, The Paradise Paradox. It looks at the mental health crisis in Mountain Town specifically and what's being done to create more resources. Then local Park City resident Dana Van Noy, an accidental expert on a gluten-free diet. She reveals truths about this misunderstood topic in her book, Living Gluten-Free for Dummies. These guests, when we return, you're listening to The Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm David Windsor. The new documentary, The Paradise Paradox, uncovers the hidden public mental health crisis afflicting America's picturesque mountain towns. And it also spotlights solutions. It's about how a community starts talking about the mental health crisis and what they do about it. Our guests are the film's director, Emmy Award-winning sports filmmaker Brett Rapkin, who also made the documentary The Weight of Gold about Michael Phelps and other Olympians. He's also the founder of the Podium Society. We also welcome someone who really needs no introduction in this community, but we'll introduce him anyway. He's family man, businessman, four-time world champion, six-time Olympic medalist, and one of the most exciting skiers of all time, Bodie Miller. Bodie was also involved in The Weight of Gold and is the executive producer of The Paradise Paradox. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. We're really excited to talk to you. This this film premiered last week to a private audience in Park City. Brett, can you just start by telling us how this came across your desk and why you wanted to get involved? Sure, yeah, I think this really is an extension of, of the weight of gold in a lot of ways um, and of you know my friendship and collaboration with, with Bodhi over the last nearly 20 years. Um, you know, the weight of gold, which focused on Olympic athletes and the mental health journey and challenges that they go through, uh, as well as some of the, the lack of resources that they were provide, uh, being provided, you know, just had such a huge impact. And, you know, Bodhi was obviously a, a big part of that. And, you know, after that came out and seeing what it, what it did for people, you know, we really felt a calling to do more. And when I heard about, um, you know, some of the, the truly startling and scary statistics about, mental health and suicide in America's mountain towns. Um, you know, I went to Bodie and said, we should really do something about that particular issue that's focused on solutions. And um, fortunately, we've been able to uh, to make a film. It's a very powerful film. It's, it's sobering, but it's also hopeful. Bodie, can you talk about your involvement and how you, as someone who's really lived in mountain towns most of your life, experience the mental health challenges among all the people that you've dealt with in your long career? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it wasn't something that I was really aware of until, you know, later on in my life. I think I, I saw it, but just like everyone, I, I believe, at least that I've talked to, um, you just kind of, I don't know, you just kind of man, man up, you know, like just, just deal with it and like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And it really, it's, it's shocking to me that I, I was, you know, unaware because New Hampshire is, is a pretty extreme version of this, right? There's, there's a tourism industry, there's really very little resources, long, cold winters. But, but I would say once I became aware of it, it really stood out to me that I, I reflected back on, my history in, in New Hampshire, um, the time I spent in in Europe in small mountain towns and trying to sort of, I guess, give some perspective to to what solutions were. And I think it was it was pretty obvious to Brett and I as we sort of dove into the, you know, what are the causes, what are the solutions, what what's our, you know, what's our goal here? You know, it's it's a tough topic. It really is. It's, you know, Brett does the work on it but it's a it's a tough topic to try to 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 get on on people's minds and people want to put their head in the sand for this one and you know unfortunately i think we're past the point where we needed to start dealing with it so it's good that we're bringing it to the forefront a little bit 
It's really good. You're right. People do kind of have their head in the sand. I was guilty of this as well. I grew up in Park City my whole life. I traveled around doing the, the big mountain tours. I worked in restaurants on Main Street. I've lived the ski bum life for decades, and I know how hard this community can party. And it's kind of just, it's the lifestyle that you don't really realize. And in the film, you guys mentioned the wealth gap can help with the depression, as well as the fact that we're living the tourist lifestyle, even though these tourists are only here for a day or two. I'm curious, Brett, has there been any studies on the fact of the landscape, the the weather, the lack of sun, the dark days, the cold snow days that we have in these mountain towns and not getting exposed to sun or or nature in that fact? Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. I think that I think we all know that sun uh, can help with mental health. That's definitely a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, there's just a whole kind of potpourri of factors that all go into this issue. And in, in, in these mountain towns, a lot of them are prevalent. I mean, you just mentioned the, the party culture. And, you know, as we get older, people, we just can't process alcohol in the same way we do when we're younger. And, um, you know, when you combine that to a lot of gun ownership, I mean, I think that's one of the main the main causes as well. Growing, growing up at a tennis camp, I think I wanted to share with Brett, I think I, I did a long, long time ago, but my, my grandfather, Jack, dealt with pretty severe depression um, around our test camp. And that was because we're in this tiny place in New Hampshire, and in the summertime, 50 or 60 kids and all these counselors come in, and it's just nonstop fun. And, you know, there's organized activities, tennis all day and activities at night, and then, and then they all leave, and he's still there. And he wrote about it extensively. He was a, a, an incredible writer and journaled like crazy. And I have one of those out here, um, one of his journals that I was just reading. And he really addressed it. He said, he said the, the thing that's, that sort of changed that for him a little bit was staying in really close contact with uh, his, his, his directors and, and the, the head counselors. And I just, I just wanted to bring that up because while we're focused on, on mountain towns, and that was my initial thing was like, okay, we're in New Hampshire and this is an extreme circumstance, right? You got 50 kids coming in and it's this nonstop, you know, summer camp that's just designed to be entertaining and fun, but so are the mountain towns. And really so is every part of everyone's life right now. It's like that we're, we're designed to build and, and enjoy activities and stuff. And then there's moments where you get separated from that for one reason or another. And, you know, it, it just, I think it's, it's more obvious really once you really dive into it than you would have thought was possible that you could go turn a blind eye to it for so long. Cause once you really dig into it, everybody deals with it. And it's not, unfortunately now it's not just exclusive to mountain towns. It really is kind of a, a global epidemic, but um, we're highlighting it in the mountain towns. It is a global epidemic. Lynn and I have done a ton of interviews on this type of stuff, and I wasn't fully privy to it until I was good friends with Jarrett Peterson, other known as Speedy, and it wasn't until his issues came out and, you know, the good that came out of it was the Speedy Foundation and the quest to bring awareness to mental health. Bodie, I'm curious with, with your experience in professional sports and the pressures in these mountain towns to compete against other elite athletes. Is that a factor with a lot of people in mountain towns and are the co coaches and programs providing a service to help eliminate that? I think it was probably what shocked Brett the most about coming over to Europe with me in, in 2005 and traveling around and is the, the independence, the, the isolation, the lack of the lack of what you would call support or, or, a, you know, a, a team, a, a, you know, resources in a way. And that, that, was really pretty clear all the way up until after Weight of Gold, really. I think Weight of Gold was remarkably effective at bringing that lack of resources for those Olympic athletes, not just ski racers, but, but across the entire Olympic spectrum. We are basically recruited and then told to go, go have at it. <laughs> like that's about the, that's about the whole thing. I mean, they, they do set up, you know, training. And then when you're competing, there is a, a group there. But when you're done competing, you go back to either your hotel room or in my case, my motorhomes, and you are, you're, you're solo. You're with whoever it is that you, that you set up. And there aren't, there, there wasn't, I mean, and since I've been retired, there wasn't any resources, really anyone to reach out to. And there was, there was dark times. I mean, Brett and I have been friends for, you know, since, since 2005, coming up on 20 years. And 
we talked about it a bunch is that, you know, it's kind of a, it's trial by fire and you see it a lot. I mean, I've, I've been uh, impressed with the changes that have happened, you know, at least within my sport of people becoming more comfortable talking authentically about their situations. Uh, Michaela is a great example. I think, you know, she, she's open about when she's having a tough day or when she's under stress or when she's feeling, feeling like it's too much. And we saw it with Simone Biles and it's a, it's a really tricky topic because I think a lot of people are stuck right on that line of, are we enabling people to not face the challenges of life? And this, I mean, they, they picked it, right? I picked it, <laughs> but I, I was there. There's been tons of times where I would have not wanted to go right? Like mentally, I just wasn't in the right place. I'm at the starting gate of a, of a huge race in Olympics or world championships. And all I want to do is, is go down and, and go do something else. And, um, you know, I, I honestly, I, I joke about it, but it's kind of true. I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I didn't know. I mean, when I saw, you know, Simone be like, you know, no, I'm not going to go, you know, I'm out. I was like, what? Why didn't you somebody do that? Me? Yeah, that's a, that's a thing. Um, but you know, I think it's, it's really a, we're in the pendulum tends to swing, right? I think the previous generation, our grandparents, you know, we're, we're a buck up and and get in there and and do what you got to do kind of generation. And then, you know, now I think we're swinging the other way where it's like, people are, are starting to recognize that that's not really the only option that there are other things. And I think finding the balance is really tricky because there is no, there's no definitive solution, right? It's a personal experience. And I think just more or less empowering people and then the resources are are kind of where we'll find that balance. So the Paradise Paradox is the name of the film. And the paradox really is this paradox between the strength of an Olympic athlete or a person that moves to a mountain town who loves these athletic endeavors and living this life in a healthy seeming environment. And yet there oftentimes can be, as Bodhi's talked about, these challenges with mental health that don't get talked about. And that is, therein lies the the problem. So Brett, can you expand on that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all that these athletes in particular who are comfortable talking about this issue of, of mental health, whether it's Bodie or Michael or Kevin Love or DeMar DeRozan from the Chicago Bulls, who are also doing a project with Michaela stepping into it. They're changing the entire paradigm because people put them on such a pedestal, you know, and rightfully so. They are physically and also mentally. Um, I remember, I mean, Bodie talks about his mental strength. And I remember the first interview with Michael Phelps, him talking about because people like to talk about, you know, Michael's body proportions and the length of his legs compared to his torso and so forth. And Michael will tell you that it's it's what's in his brain that really propelled him to be as great as he was. But the reason that that we love working with these athletes and, and we put them front and center in these projects, whether it's as an executive producer like Bodie or an interviewee like Michaela, is that at the end of the day, they're just human. And what they go through is... Um, in a lot of ways, like anybody else at the end of the day, as Bodhi just mentioned, you know, you're by yourself, you're on your own, whether you're, whether you have, you know, 23 Olympic gold medals or, or you're working as a lifty. So we think that um, the issue is completely um, something everybody can relate to. And working with the athletes is just really um, a great way into the story. Mm, absolutely. Well, the Paradise Paradox, it's also set, the, a big part of the story takes place in Eagle County, where Vale is in Colorado. And Bodie, going through and with Brett making this movie and, and looking at the stories of tragedy, of grief, of um, people finally saying enough is enough, we need to start talking about this. How does that feel for you it's encouraging i'm i'm an optimistic person and i i understand i think pretty well the the human condition and the the faults we have i think you know as a culture as a species unfortunately for the last 
you know, as long as I've been alive, you know, I, I would call it probably somewhere in the 60s is when we were as unified as we could get, at least from a philosophical standpoint, from a behavioral patterning standpoint. And since then, we've been moving further and further apart, you know, just in general, just people are disassociating. We're, we're, we're creating more and more space between each other, less and less likely to be able to reach out to someone and say, you know, hey, I need help, right? I'm having a tough day. And um, you see it even amongst friends. I mean, we, I tell my kids all the time, you know, when I say, how's it going? I don't just want a good, you know, that's, that's a generic programmed response. I want you to think for a second and let me know what it is. Even if it's still good, it can be good, but, but I want some insight into why you're good. And what's the, what's the counterpoint to that good? Cause there's usually some other thing that's maybe not as good, but that's, that's being overwhelmed by your desire to say you're good or to feel like you're good. You know, the fake it till you make it <laughs> mentality. You know, what, what I think is, is really kind of unique about this is that the solution is, is right in front of us. It's just, we're not patterned into it. The solution is connectivity. It's, it's community. It's real um, heartfelt uh, communication and embracing the best parts of what it means to be human, which is that we can empathize and relate. And I, Michaela, I think, says it in the film about, you know, what's what's the one thing that everyone can relate to? And, you know, that's across, you know, socioeconomic, um, geographic, everything. And, and I think she's right. I think it's struggle. I, I don't think there is another one that stands out as far to me as as the single thing that we could all relate to everybody struggles whether you're an olympic athlete uh the president a lift op or work at the gas station or or unemployed um as a parent or as a single kid who's 12 years old like everybody can deal with can understand that people struggle and right now with the instagram generation uh it's easy to think that people don't struggle it's easy to think that everybody else's life is just non-stop awesome and you know, I think the, the solution is, is simply connectivity. It's, you know, it doesn't, I think that's maybe one of the things that, that we, we need to continue to work on is Vail is a unique spot and really empower, empowered and, and powerful people came together and raised a lot of money. And the solutions that they came up with are remarkable, but it's not reproducible in every other place. I mean, they raised, I think it's $86 million they've raised right now. Um, and I don't think all the solutions have to be monetary and they don't have to be treatment solutions. They have to be um, hitting at the, the root of the problem. And some of that is as inexpensive as anything <laughs> can be, which is just people communicating, people being open. You know, that doesn't cost anything. It, people would, might think it costs some emotional uh, vulnerability, but ultimately it's positive for both parties if they can figure out how to do it. So, you know, it's it's really important that we get the conversation going. I think it's also really important that we highlight the successes that they've pulled off in the Eagle Valley. But I think it's important to point out as well that that it's not this isn't a one-dimensional problem and it's there's not one one solution to it. And some of the solutions are going to be really accessible for for everybody and some are going to be really challenging. One of the things I'm trying to do with the film, I spent the whole day yesterday mapping this out with my team, like literally looking at all the different conglomerates that own the ski resorts. And I'm something like 90% of the ski resorts are owned by several companies. And we're we're hoping that this film can be a tool to for all of them to reach across the aisle and to work together along with some of these most influential families and private equity companies, et cetera, to address this nationally. So that not only can some of the solutions that have been created in, in Eagle Valley be replicated, but maybe there's even a scenario where they're sharing resources, whether that's ideas or blueprints or even funding. I think we have a major opportunity here. We're starting to get the attention of the entire snow sports industry. Bodie and I both have no politics involved to you know, reach out to every different organization. This film is not just meant to um, open up the conversation. It's meant to create actual real change. And we won't be satisfied unless we see tangible results from the film. And that doesn't just mean conversation. I love that, you guys. I mean, you're really taking this 
extra layers deep and back to what Bodhi was saying about the connectivity. It, it is just, it's amazing in that film how a, a child had multiple suicide attempts and no one's talking about it. So if you're asking someone one layer below or deeper than how are you doing and actually really finding out the root of these people's problems. And then in addition, getting these large private equity firms, these, these ski resorts to provide services for the people that are running the show, i.e. the employees, the lifties, the people that are out there doing it. And in Eagle Valley, I think it was, but they have that marijuana tax. And I don't know much about tax laws, but Brett is, can these communities provide like a sale or do like a sales tax or a liquor tax or something that goes towards the mental issues, something in, in line with that marijuana tax that they were doing? I imagine so. I imagine if it's not marijuana, there's some kind of public tax. Um, I think it's, is it also maybe in Eagle Valley where if you go to a restaurant and you sign your bill, there's an extra line to give a contribution to some kind of mental health or they call it behavioral health is the term they like to use up there. But it's really just, first of all, I think a lot of it comes down to getting organized. I think what you find in Eagle Valley is they found somebody who could lead, who wasn't afraid to call out some of the politics and some of the embedded um, structural pieces. For example, there being a lot of nonprofits that weren't necessarily organized and pulling at the same end of the rope. You know, this guy, Chris Lindley, along with his team, who came from, you know, one of the great things as a storyteller I love about Chris's story is he doesn't come from a background in behavioral health. He's an Iraqi war veteran, an epidemiologist who, you know, I think he, in a lot of ways, he's like Bodhi and I, where he just kind of questions the status quo. Um, and he got everybody at the table and they had some, they started having some honest conversations and eventually started pulling in the right direction, whether it was utilizing some public funding from the marijuana tax, getting uh, some of these high net worth families to give as much as they have. I mean, that 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 wealth in Eagle Valley and in the Vale Valley is not new. How was this group able to get so much of it um, all to the table? You know, I think there's a lot to be learned about their fundraising. So we're hoping with their story, along with Altera, who, in addition to, you know, supporting and believing in this film, we got access to some of the programs they're doing for their their patrollers who you know are dealing with a ton of trauma that you see in the film. You know, we're hoping that these two organizations can be um, the models to at least start a conversation about how those things can be replicated. Boy, there were some incredible figures in the film and the one ski patroller, you know, that was something that really uh, illuminated the issues for for me for the trauma. You know, I I guess I've always had this belief that, you know, oh, ski patrollers, they're these tough, resilient people that see this kind of stuff all the time and and they're equipped to deal with it. And to see that ski patroller, it is heartbreaking, the story that he tells about, you know, coming upon a 20-year-old who eventually passes away from his trauma and just what they go through too. And we have so many ski patrollers in Park City and, you know, it's kind of like you want to reach out and give each one of them a hug way to go with illuminating these stories and also the model the financial model Bodhi, with your leadership role now in the big sky community i'm wondering how you are bringing this model there and how it's manifesting in that community yeah it's been it's been nice up here because we have good support within um loan online company they've really taken a, a pretty aggressive role with it the one challenge is the politics between Lone Mountain Land Company and and Boeing, which is runs Big Sky. But I do think that um, this is a great example of a place that maybe we need to come up with some more creative solutions that aren't all financially driven. And I, I view that as an opportunity as much as anything. I mean, of course, you know, Lone Mountain Land Company is a is a great company. Sees the issue, believes that it needs to be address but I, I don't know that we could raise the kind of money that they did in veil maybe we can i'm not I'm not sure yet but we have a, a place down in town called base and it's for all the young kids uh to go to after school it's just a free um, open rec center that has everything basketball rock climbing all kinds of games and and um there they have a mental health worker um a therapist it's open door and you know they there's several of them they come out and they hang out with the kids and they they see the people and they've they've made a very conscious effort to to reach out to the the core of the workforce in big sky 
and and really try to reduce that stigma so that people aren't afraid. They're they're worried about someone seeing them come out of that office door. <laughs> um, and I think I think fortunately that part is it's less scary or less of a thing in reality than it than it is in people's minds. But it's you know I think this is a good example of a, a great place to test out some of my theories, which is just connecting people doing fun activities. I think sport is a great way to unify people, give them some activity. We're going to start up this winter, you know, sledding races uh, every every week. These like sledding races that are around a barbecue with no drinking. So people have a chance to do something, socialize without drinking. And, you know, that's a part of it is a lot of times people, when they drink, they will have more honest, open conversations. But the flip side of that is they're also... That, that those are the times that are the most vulnerable to, you know, making bad decisions or, you know, so it's, we need to be able to get people open and honest and vulnerable without the alcohol involved. And so I think there's a, a bunch of initiatives that we're going to start putting in place this year and hopefully get Boyne and um, Lone Mountain Land Company to the table and we can all have the conversations about it. That's great. Well, Brett, how are we seeing the movie now? How are you wanting to distribute it and and get it out there? Well, we just finished it under the under the gun for the uh, the screening we had up your way on Friday evening, and we're just we're thrilled with the way it turned out. Right now, we're focused on asking people to visit paradiseparadoxfilm.com to sign up for screenings. We want this first phase to be people seeing it with as many of their communities as possible rather than just watching it at home by themselves. We'll eventually stream it, you know, globally and for free. But for right now, we want people to sign up uh, to watch it with their community for free. Uh, we're going to provide a link to the film along with a, a discussion guide and a workbook so communities can can get together and talk about how they can take action. We're also planning a, um, a national day of action uh, that we'll be making an announcement on soon. But yeah, for the time being, paradiseparadoxfilm.com and filmmaker Brett Rapkin and champion skier, businessman, family man, Bodie Miller. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Mountain Life. We really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you guys. for having us, guys. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm David Windsor. Our next guest is local resident Dana Van Noy who is also known as the gluten-free guru. She was shoved into the deep end of the gluten-free pool in 1991. Think about that. It was long before the internet, long before anyone knew what gluten was, and long before there were products, cookbooks, and bloggers. She was desperate to save her then toddler son, Tyler, and on her own to figure out how to do it. She's written many books on the topic and joins us today to talk about her most recent book, Living Gluten-Free for Dummies. Dana, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you so much for having me. We're really happy to have you. And I love that we have a local author who also is big into the gluten-free world. And as you say, from 1991, Tyler was a little toddler. What were his health symptoms and how did you ever think about gluten? Because we didn't know about it then. Did not know about it. And keep in mind, that's 32 years ago. It was long before the internet or any books were written. Nobody knew what gluten was. And I had this little old nine-month-old at the time, and he had diarrhea badly. So, you know, nervous new mom, take him to the doctor. Doctor said, hmm, there's nothing wrong with this kid, but back in a couple of weeks if he still has diarrhea. So, of course, I did and did and did again for weeks and months on end before doctor number one said, you know what, honey, your kid is fine. Go away and please don't come back to our office. I was literally fired from my pediatrics office. So I went to doctor number two, same result, three, same result. And finally, doctor number four, I ran into by chance. We had changed insurance and Tyler had an ear infection. So I took him in for the ear infection. I mean, everybody's telling me the kid's fine otherwise. So the doctor said, you know, I'm going to get to the ears in a minute, but right now, what is wrong with his belly? This kid is starving to death. And I just cried tears of joy because somebody was going to listen to me. And so we, we uh, started pursuing what could be wrong with him. And it involved uh, several trips to Children's Hospital in San Diego, where they still threw their hands up and said, 
no idea what's wrong with this kid. But uh, about a year and a half after my initial concerns, he was finally diagnosed. And the doctor said, I have good news and bad news. The good news is we have a name for this. And the bad news is we don't know anything about it. And at that time, he said, it's a rare pediatric condition. Today, we know it's neither rare nor pediatric condition, but finally we had some answers. But I was terrified to feed my own kid. I'm wondering also if other health-related symptoms, like the, the fact that he had an ear, uh, an ear infection and things like that were manifestations of gluten, the effects of gluten in his body. Yes, great question too, Lynn, because I'd love to talk about the symptoms and the problem with looking for symptoms. There are well over 250 symptoms that can be associated with celiac disease. And sometimes they have no symptoms whatsoever. So that becomes very confusing. For Tyler, his little arms and legs were growing, they were shrinking. He had none and he had a huge Biafra belly. By the time he was finally diagnosed, he looked like a malnourished child, he was. And so that was another symptom. Also the doctor asked me, has his behavior changed? And I said, yeah, he's become very clingy and he's mommy attached and he wasn't like that before. And that was, that was definitely a red flag as well. And Dan, I owned a gluten-free company for eight years, from 2019 to like 17-ish. We had a product called Banana Flour. It was unripe green bananas, dehydrated and milled into flour. And because they were green, they were high in starch, which allowed them to bake well. So it was a baking alternative. A lot of our customers that reached out to us had a very similar story to yours. Their, their children were struggling, their spouses were struggling, and they couldn't figure out why. But we started our journey 15 years-ish after you did in 2009. And so what do you think it is about gluten intolerance or celiac that is so behind the curve and is taking so long to evolve with the diagnosis? Great question. There are several reasons for that. Number one, we are behind other countries. So Europe is miles ahead of us in terms of the diagnosis itself and understanding everything about it. Um, but number two, it's so hard for people to get diagnosed right now because and, and still today, it's gotten better, but it's hard to get diagnosed because the symptoms are so varied. It might be that they just have anxiety or depression. And guess what? You go to the doctor for anxiety or depression, they're likely to hand you a pill. So it could be they're infertile. They're going to suggest IVF. I mean, I'm going to extremes, but those, those are actually symptoms of gluten sensitivity or celiac disease. So hard to diagnose. Also, you know, the medical field sometimes tends to hear hoofbeats and then look for a horse but this is a zebra and they now are becoming more aware of it. But boy, 32 years ago, no internet, no books, no awareness, no foods in the stores. Nobody knew what gluten was. 32 years ago, it's a whole different story. So I'm imagining my time speaking to doctors and customers and all these things. And I've been out of the game for a minute, but as far as the diagnosis of gluten and the understanding of what it can do, it has it evolved more than being a hard disease to diagnose, one. And two, is it gotten any better? Because I recall that it had to do with the fact that America had changed. It was GMOs all in our products. So is that moving any closer towards the right direction or is it still just backpedaling because of America and the USD regulations? Well, we are catching up and people are becoming far more aware than they were 30 something years ago and that includes the medical profession so now as i said they they tend they hear hoofbeats they tend to look for horses now they're starting to think maybe it's a zebra and people are becoming empowered and they're telling people their healthcare professional i want to be tested but keep in mind also there's celiac disease which is i'm going to call it a spectrum but it's at one end of the gluten intolerance spectrum not really a spectrum per se and there's gluten intolerance it's very hard to get a good diagnosis. Also, Lynn, you were talking about somebody who had a diagnosis of being negative for celiac. That does not mean that they aren't gluten intolerant. It also could mean the tests weren't done properly because oftentimes they're looking, they, they should be doing five antibody tests. Sometimes they do one or two, so they might miss it there. It, it also could be triggered at any point in your life. And so if you were fine your whole life and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, beer and pizza is making me feel icky, it could be that you were only recently triggered. And it's so important to realize this. Once tested is not always tested, meaning you could be negative at one point with a great, you know, legit testing process, 
but you might be positive the next month. It's interesting, Dana, that for someone like your, you know, darling little baby boy who was gluten intolerant, we I think of it always as somehow our diets have gotten out of balance or maybe our food has been modified enough that somehow our bodies are shutting down to it. But a, a little baby, what was his history that led him into this place? Do, do you know that or can you only yeah. suspect at this point? Well, there was nobody in our family that had ever been diagnosed with it or, and nobody really with symptoms either. So we had no clues going into this, what the problem might be. And again, keep in mind, there's a huge difference between celiac disease and other forms of gluten intolerance. And so we just really had no idea what we were walking into, nor did anybody else back then. It was just something people weren't very aware of. And as far as our diets changing, yes. However, you need to back up the clock about 10,000 years ago when in the agricultural revolution, we started introducing wheat to our diets and our bodies said, whoa, this is a toxin. What is this? And it started the revolt right there. And so before, you know, before then we didn't have wheat, <laughs> didn't have problems with it. But yeah, our bodies 10,000 years ago is yesterday, evolutionarily speaking. And so our bodies really don't do well with it. And, and I should say also, you've got celiac and gluten intolerance, but really wheat in and of itself causes a myriad of problems in any individual, any human being. You're just joining us on The Mountain Life. We're speaking with Dana Van Noy. It's a book that she has written. It's eighth book, and it's called Living Gluten-Free for Dummies. I'm very familiar with gluten-free, and I learned a lot of things in your book. So a lot of new things. Hey, thank you for that. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because we have learned so much. And the For Dummies title is a bit unfortunate. I'm forever grateful that they asked me to write books for them. But it is a little unfortunate because people think it's dumbed down. But the science, the medical, the behavioral, sociological impacts are all are all in that book. And this new book that I just came out with is about 70% new content. So a lot of people tell me, well, I have your, edition, your second edition, but this is 70% or so, give or take new content. So as Lynn mentioned, the the book is called Book for Dummies, but it's more about the basics. So let's talk about the basics for the particular listener that may be tuning in and kind of really honing in on gluten-free for the first time. So gluten is a protein and we have these finger-like villi in our intestines, correct? And those villi try to absorb the nutrients. Is that accurate? You're dead on so far. Yep. So when when your body can't process the gluten, those basically those villi, the finger likes get cut off almost, and then your body's not collecting the, the nutrients. Is that is that also accurate? That is absolutely correct when you're talking about somebody who A has celiac disease and B is eating gluten. So those two things are really important to note because if you're not eating gluten, you will not show up positive on an antibody test, for instance. And, um, and people with true celiac disease, as opposed to gluten intolerance, need to um, realize that they have the genetic predisposition. When you were asking earlier, what was it that made Tyler, you know, quote unquote, get this? He has the genetic predisposition, as do many millions of people. So millions of people, as you mentioned, need to be gluten-free, and many don't know it, because it's a very underdiagnosed disease. But more people, you say more people are going gluten-free for all the wrong reasons. Explain that a little bit more. What are the wrong reasons and how can how can going gluten-free be a bad thing potentially? Yeah, um, well, gluten in and of itself isn't great for any human being, um, but going gluten-free just for the heck of it is is sometimes not a good idea because if you have celiac disease, you really should be properly tested so that you can be aware that you have 100% strict adherence to this diet. If you haven't been tested and your biological relatives haven't been tested, then people sometimes go into denial or they cheat because they don't know for sure, for sure that they have it. So yeah, being tested is really important if you suspect celiac disease. But then you're back to your question, is it you know bad for you to go gluten-free? No, absolutely not. I would just encourage people to be properly tested. Because as I mentioned earlier, you can't be properly tested for celiac disease after you've been gluten-free for a, you know, let's say three months. What you're saying then, Dana, is that you have to have been introduced to some gluten 
for how long to see if you actually are testing positive for celiac? It depends on a lot of things, um, how long you've been eating gluten in the past, when, you're, when your symptoms first began, and how long you were symptomatic, if you were symptomatic. Some people have no symptoms whatsoever. So you really need to be eating, you know, that we measure in, in parts per million, but you really need to eat, be eating, let's say, one piece of toast a day for a few months before you get tested and accept the results. And then also realize there are false negatives in the testing process and very few false, false positives. So if you get a negative test, you know, it doesn't mean A, that it was done well, and it doesn't mean you won't trigger in the near future. Mm. Has your son Tyler, gosh, he must be about 32, 33 now, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, has his, you know, going without eating gluten for so many years, has anything changed? Is he celiac or is he just extremely gluten sensitive or has that changed? Yeah, he is absolutely celiac and that never changes. Once you, you know, once we know you have celiac disease, you're never going to not have it. Your symptoms may go away if you quit eating gluten, but you're going to have it for life. So Tyler, I used to laugh, you know, here I am terrified to feed my own kid. And I've got a almost two-year-old saying, I want crackers, I want cake, he's pasta, bread, pizza, you know, everything that we feed our children. And he couldn't have any of it. He was a great little athlete. And I used to tell him, you have an athletic advantage because we go out for your baseball team functions and the kids are eating pizza and you're eating a chicken breast and salad. So saying that, going back on that level of being a celiac never changes, I would imagine that not much um, has, I mean, this is kind of a forgotten disease. Is there any new studies that are providing some sort of relief for gluten intolerance or celiac disease, i.e. like, like a pill like you could take for uh, lactose intolerant type stuff? Is there any kind of studies or movement towards uh, a remedy for this? Yeah, absolutely. And I do cover a lot of that. That's a lot of the new information in this book because they have really tried hard to come up with either a vaccine. So let's say you know that you have the genetic predisposition. They, they're trying to come up with a vaccine and medications or you know something to help you to um, be able to eat the gluten, but not have the deleterious effects. Got it. So Dana, what is your overall objective with this book? I mean, what are you hoping for your audience to understand about gluten intolerance and, and get out of this? I love the fact that I've been privileged enough to help people throughout the last 30 something years. People have come to me and said, I have been sick for five years, 10 years, 30 years. I, I had one woman come to me and say, I was diagnosed with a form of cancer, but because I heard you speak and read your information, I went back and made some demands of my physician. And now I know it was celiac disease. That's the beauty of this is that gluten intolerance and celiac disease can be controlled through diet. We don't need surgery. We don't need ongoing medications forever. To me, that's beautiful. And I, I love to share the passion of loving a gluten-free lifestyle. And I love helping people. I, over these years, I used to speak all around the world a lot and people would just come up to me crying or to Tyler crying and saying, you, you changed my life. And that's just incredibly rewarding. I'm curious about how Tyler, how he developed as really being, you know, 90% of his life being gluten-free and how it has affected, you know, everything about him. And and even because gluten can produce, you know, bad psychiatric symptoms and things like that. How has he developed as a full 32-year-old? <laughs> well, he took control. I gave him control of his diet the minute he was diagnosed. He was two years old. And I taught him what this meant for him for life. And that means becoming a cook because you're going to be cooking for yourself and, and telling your friend's family, I can't eat wheat, rye, barley, you know, and teaching him these little sound bites. So giving a child control and keep in mind, it's not a pediatric disorder. More people are diagnosed in their sixties than as children, but giving the child control was huge for me. And the other thing I always had to remember, and I talk about is that kids have ears. 
And if you go to their teacher with kid in hand and you say, I'm so sorry, this is going to be a bit of a pain for you, but fill in the blank. The kid, all he's hearing is I'm pain. I'm a pain in the high knee. And so we have to be very careful about how we uh, talk to other people about a child's condition when the child is there. And I, I just, empowering them is so important. And Tyler would, you know, even at age six, he'd go to a friend's house and the mom would call me later and say, you little boy's so cute. I offered him cookies and all he wanted was an apple. <laughs> all right, he, he's taking control and not making a big deal of it. That's the other thing I always said, it is no one else's responsibility to take, to accommodate your diet or, you know, at that time, our diet. And so it's up to you and us and they shouldn't be expected. I'll be the team mom for every event so that I'm not bringing pizza to every event, but making them feel as quote unquote normal as possible, I believe is very important. I agree and that normalcy was, is probably a lot harder back then when there was not a lot of options. And I kind of stumbled into this. And then by default, my stepdaughter, we found out that she was gluten intolerant. And then by default, my wife and her have been gluten-free for the last decade. And I've dabbled in it. Just The house itself doesn't provide that much gluten to be had. So I, I've i lived this lifestyle for a while. But when I was running my business, there was a lot of skeptics about just the taste of gluten-free products. And just that was one of the biggest things of all my friends that ha didn't want anything to do with this was, oh, th those things suck. And has it evolved in a little bit in, in the last five years that has made it seem like it, we're moving in the right direction as far as quality goes? Heck yeah. And it's a really important, really important observation because today, you can go get gluten-free foods that are even properly prepared at a restaurant or you know any any grocery store. When I started doing this 32 years ago, I called Whole Foods and Wild Oats and General Mills and you know everybody, and nobody had heard of gluten. Wild Oats, I mean, uh, Whole Foods had no idea. And now you've got completely dedicated aisles, and people can typically feel fairly safe even eating out because restaurants offer gluten-free options so man we've come a long way baby and probably still have a little bit to go but yes the flavor the accessibility and the affordability it's been huge in the last 30 years i would agree i've kind of become a gluten-free pizza connoisseur if you will i've i've dabbled in all of them and i know which ones not to touch and which ones to <laughs> stock all up on when they have them in the store yeah. And have you ever thought about as you've, you are the gluten-free guru, you've written eight books, you have so much experience in this field, you have so much connection, so much energy and passion about this topic. Have you ever considered diving into providing products and getting into the food industry for this, for gluten-free? I have. I actually was a partner, not even just a consultant, but an actual partner with General Mills as they developed their entire gluten-free line, which was huge. Um, I also, you know, I reached out to Whole Foods, Wild Oats, et cetera, early in the process to make sure everybody understood what gluten is and to properly start providing it. So, yeah, absolutely, things have come a long way and there's still some room to grow. And you're talking about the flavorless or people, you know, talking about the flavor. When Tyler was very young, three or four or five, I would have his friends over and I would try my best to make something edible that was a treat, cookies or you know, whatever. And back then we didn't have blends of gluten-free flours. And the only flour available was either tapioca or rice flour. And then you had to buy xanthan gum, put it in. And you've got about a $50 plate of cookies that oftentimes tasted horrible. And I remember his friend, little AJ spit one 30 feet across the room one time. And I was trying to feel like June Cleaver making this these great cookies, but they were pretty bad, but they have come so far. We used to have to toast every piece of bread and put gobs of jelly or butter or whatever on it to make it edible and to make it stick together. But today, man, they're good, good products. So Dana, I want to, in just uh, with a few minutes left, I want to talk about the book. I feel like I could talk to you all day just about being gluten-free and, and getting tested and what the triggers are. But you know, there are all of these recipes in here. It's a it's a recipe book, but it's also you you do a great job of ex, of explaining the types of grains and things, just these basics for food that people may feel like they're missing in their diet if they cut out wheat. And it's it's not true at all. We're we're gluten free. Well, my husband's gluten free. 
I'm not. I have the occasional stick bread from <laughs> from the bakery, and um, but it is pretty easy. I'm surprised how easy and and actually tasty it is to be gluten free. It is, and it can be done nutritionally or not. I have to say, junk food is junk food. So you know, you buy the gluten free crackers or cookies. That's not necessarily the best thing, but it's gluten free. So we'll go with that. But yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you mentioned the recipes in my book, so. I don't consider myself a cookbook author, even though I've written several. I consider myself more of a lifestyle and science and medical, and I make up my own recipes. I don't follow recipes ever, so I made them up. Fortunately, my publisher tested them all to make sure they were edible, and not all of them were in the beginning. Um, but yes, there are recipes, but really I focus more on the behavioral. How do you how do you go to a wedding? How do you, you know, how do you just the cycle? How do you do with the grief when you're first diagnosed? It's it's almost like post-traumatic stress disorder when people are first diagnosed sometimes. And so I love to focus on that and the medical and the science and all that good stuff. That's great. I have a nephew who was just diagnosed as celiac the other day and he's uh, right around 30. So, but it was, it was something that he sort of grew up with because his mom is celiac, but it just goes to show you, like you say, that these are, these can be later onset conditions and even gluten sensitivity can be, you know, later onset. So um, again, the biggest things to pay attention to and, and the test, I still feel like the testing is not really perfect. Do you feel that way? Right. It's really not. There are a couple of different ways to go about it. You can do the antibody test, which is a blood test, but there are five tests that the doctor should be doing with that blood test. And I hear all too often, most of the time, that they only did two or one even. And that's really not sufficient. If they do one test and it comes out negative, I would encourage you go back, study the tests that need to be done. Unfortunately, you have to keep eating gluten because you have to be have gluten in your in your body. Um, but I think that's a really important note is that you you definitely need to be tested properly if you want a, a true diagnosis. Well, Dana Van Noy uh, is our guest, and her book is Living Gluten-Free for Dummies. It's the third edition. Dana, thank you so much for joining us on The Mountain Life. This has been really great. Thank you both so much. It's been my pleasure.